0: Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tikowski. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. Today, we are talking about online lenders, fintech lenders, and what the recent Colorado AG settlement with Avant and Marlette means for fintech, bank partnerships, and the industry as a whole. Joining us today is Mary Jackson, CEO of the Online Lenders Alliance, the first and largest trade association representing the growing industry of fintech companies that harness technology to deliver safe, convenient, private, and reliable credit options for consumers. And Ed Garris, general counsel of a diversified fintech company based in Miami, a Washington DC-based attorney, fintech enthusiast, and counselor to many startups, online lenders, and non-bank financial services clients. Welcome to the show, Mary and Ed. Thank you. Uh, Now, before we get into it, and I promise you guys, this is going to be a very interesting conversation. I do want to take a moment to thank our sponsor for today's episode, InvestNet Yodley. For those of you who have not had the opportunity to check out InvestNet Yodley's new launch pad, I highly encourage you to do a quick Google search, and you'll find it chock full of very relevant content. Uh, they have an upcoming new series for virtual fireside chats about the future of work. Uh, as they call it, the C-Series Real Talk Series is going to kick off very soon with Joshua Gordon Blake, GM at Pangea Money Transfer, so definitely check that out. Okay. So, Mary, Ed, are we ready?
1: Yes.
0: All right. So, I want to set the stage for listeners. For those of you less familiar with the industry, fintech and online lending specifically have in recent years completely blown banks out of the water when it comes to the personal loan market for the last few years. In 2019, according to TransUnion, the main driver of this rapid growth is lending by Upstart Fintechs, which accounted for 38% of all personal loans issued, a huge leap from just over five years ago when they only accounted for 5%. And over the last decade, the number of Americans with personal loans has nearly doubled from around 11 million in 2010 to about 21 million as of the last count this year in 2020. Um, And the personal loan debt volume has nearly tripled from 55 billion to 162 billion. So needless to say, this is very big business in a market that is absolutely exploding. So who is actually borrowing all of this money? Well, everyone. Personal loans were traditionally marketed towards subprime borrowers, but fintech has really changed that as of a few years ago. In early 2020, above prime borrow- borrowers held about 40% of all outstanding loan balances, an increase from around 33% in 2013. Now we may have, uh, you know, the Goldman Sachs's uh, and Marcuses of the world to thank for for some of that, But no doubt online loans and FinTech in particular really do account for a large port of the credit opportunity and markets that are available to subprime borrowers. And I know Mary is gonna have a few things that she wants to say about that. Now we know that FinTech lenders come in all shapes and sizes with all sorts of different structures on how they fund their businesses, their loans, but most importantly, how they partner with banks. Intro the Colorado AG lawsuit with Avant and Marlette. So I can turn it over to Ed to maybe give us a quick overview of what that lawsuit was all about, but more importantly, uh, what happened a few weeks ago when that lawsuit was finally settled.
2: Right. So thank you, Dara. Let me actually set the stage with who the players are first, because this is a really important thing to think about when you look at the the settlement agreement, the relief that's granted as this is resolved with Colorado. So at, at a top level, First understand that at least in my view uh, banking uh, in the United States right now fits into a couple of different buckets or categories, and there's this segment of banking and we're seeing it all over the place who's involved in making main street loans who is involved in high volume and paycheck protection loans? the most aggressive people in these uh, in in the banking sector right now are branch banks of foreign banks and smaller. <laughs> To mid-sized state charter banks or OCC charter banks, they're the mid-level banks. A lot of the large banks are sitting out this this, this kind of work. The mid-level banks, like the two that are involved in in this particular settlement, WebBank uh, and Cross River, they're looking for aggressive ways to uh, to grow their volume, to grow assets under management, and to grow their usefulness. So the first two players, but not deposits. It, it, they are looking to grow deposits. Uh, many, many people don't know that uh, that a lot of the banks who are really active in the in the Main Street program right now, to the extent that those are starting just to roll out. Are putting you know tens of millions of dollars in deposit requirements on people that they're making these kinds of loans to, they just with these particular consumers and these fintech partners, the play is not to grow deposits from consumers or business customers. It is intended to grow assets uh, to some extent. Although you see uh, one of the struggles here is about uh, sale of the loans that are made. Uh, And when that happens and in what volume, how much how much risk does the bank have to hold?
0: Okay, Ed. So let's let's rewind for a second. It's January 2017. The Colorado AG files two lawsuits. They file one against Marlette and they file one against Avant. Why did they do that?
2: They, uh, the, the short answer is the Colorado AG deliberately wants to attack the valid when made doctrine about uh, which interest rate can be exported to consumers in the state of Colorado and instead to uh, invoke a more modernistic view of what's known as the true lender test. And what this really breaks down to is when a bank makes a loan and then it's sold to a third party that doesn't hold that bank charter, Does the interest rate that the bank made it under hold or does a new set of regulatory requirements and a different set of people who can actually regulate that bank, namely the Colorado AG and the Colorado lender, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the supervisor the, the supervisor lenders. with the yeah. oversight over the lending licensees. Uh, that's the battle that's going on here. That's what they sought.
0: So the Colorado AG's beef was essentially, and Mary, hop in here anytime mm-hmm. you like, their beef was that the way this was structured, the way these partnerships between um, Avant and Marlette and the two banks that you mentioned earlier, Cross River and uh, Web Bank, um, were such that Web Bank and Cross River were originating assigning those debts to the two fintechs at issue and the two fintechs marlette and avant did not hold supervised lender licenses with the state of colorado and the ag was pissed that they didn't do that
2: so actually uh uh, i don't know if the licenses came later in the process um i didn't dig that far back but the settlement makes clear one of the things i think blows my mind about this is these are two banks with fdic and state charters fully examined and fully ticked and tied and both lenders as of the time of the settlement are colorado supervised lenders so you have a and, and you have a settlement negotiation and, and, a, and a release that says we're doing this because in the air in the time of covid we really need to be able to protect consumers from people who are preying on them
0: mary so, I see i see you itching to say something yeah <laughs> let's get in there mary Yeah, so uh, first
1: of all, thanks for having me. And, you know, I've been in the industry for well over 30 years now. And uh, I'd like to tell the audience that my perspective is really quite keen on this because I used to be a subprime consumer. Um, And I remember distinctively back in the 90s, early 90s, when Capital One and Providian and some of the subprime lenders at the time said yes to me and saved me from really probably a horrible outcome uh, in a financial cataclysmic op, you know, thing that happened to me and might have really uh, stubbed my toe in my career path. So you know, I can't stress how important it is that we focus on the consumers. And what we've been talking about here is an age-old problem of usury caps in the United States. Um, everybody thinks that they protect consumers, But they don't what they protect consumers from is getting access to credit and we've seen this time and time again uh colorado ag is a law enforcement agency so if there's a law on their books or a ballot initiative like the colorado law uh, they want to enforce their state law and i totally understand that but policymakers really have let go of their responsibilities to argue these cases and look at facts as a matter of fact the federal reserve just came out with a study that said Um, that the rate cap debate uh, because of the cost of doing business today for a $1,000 loan should be well above 100% APR. So why is Colorado continuing to embrace 36% and continue to redline consumers from enjoying the fintech revolution and getting access to credit that actually helps them build credit or uh, repair their credit? And as we've seen with these FinTech partnerships, um, back to the 2018 treasury report, treasury said that banks have to get into the technology game and technology is expensive to develop and to use correctly and to make sure you're compliant with all the state laws. That's why the FinTech companies have been encouraged to partner with banks to deliver exceptional innovation to all consumers, right? Um, they get it. We've been listening forever about uh, people going on about, we have to protect consumers, we have to serve the underbank. Well, that is happening with these fintech partnerships. People fail to realize that the Innovation is revolutionizing and reaching the customers that we've been talking about for so long. And then every time they get involved and they wanna you know, protect people, it does the total opposite. When the ballot initiative passed in uh, Colorado, they don't have any state licensed lenders that serve this population anymore. And the people who are left, you have to secure the loan by your auto. You have to show a lot of longevity in your employment history to get a loan. So it changes the dynamic. So Um, it just excludes people in this process. And it's really disheartening to see these policies and this fighting going on through a legal argument um, that doesn't really care about the outcome of consumers. It's just, we we got a political win. Uh, I'm a political office. I got a political win and I'm going to go home now. It, It doesn't help the average working person get access to credit. And that's what's so frustrating. And there's other studies, the West Point study Nobody knows about this West Point study. It's like a—it's out there. Just Google it. 2017, West Point said, "Is the Military Lending Act is it doing well for soldiers?" And the results were no, it's not. The whole reason for MLA was to make sure service members were not involuntarily separated from service because of financial difficulties. And since MLA, they've had, uh, if they didn't have this policy, 10% of service members would not have been involuntarily separated from service because their financial conditions are worse. So, you know, I look at this policy or the settlement as trying to claim this is the new roadmap. No, it's not. It is the total opposite of what policymakers should be looking at.
0: Well, so it's, uh, it's interesting. I, I, it's not coincidental that the settlement sort of came right on the heels of what was a significant ruling in the underlying court action, right? So, the lawsuit gets filed in 2017. It gets amended again in 2018, where the AG amends the complaint to include related entities and the securitization trusts, and you know all of the all of the pockets, right? All, all of the deep pockets that are that are associated with sort of this structure. And then in June, finally, June of this summer, the court ruled that even though the banks were unquestionably um, the lenders under the loans, the, the documents made that very, very clear. The platforms, Avant-Marlette, as the s could not stand in the shoes of the banks regarding the loans. That was the, big, that was the big ruling, and that's why we saw, sort of, less than 60 days later, this settlement come out. Because after that ruling, you know, Ed, chime in here. If I'm representing Avant-Marlette, my entire structure for how I've designed my entire business has just been told it's not working well
2: it's it's half of your business right because the thing to understand about these arrangements is the fintech aspect of the bank partnership has two pieces one is these platforms like Yvonne and Marlette have technologies and credit underwriting capabilities to find and risk rank the risk of consumers Uh, in a manner that the banks are ill-equipped to do under their traditional underwriting methods for their standard products. So there's some aspect of it that can exist without this settlement. And and that literally, that's that's the disruption we talk about in FinTech, about people who look at how do we use other attributes to understand credit, make it available, rank risk, deal with collections, et cetera. But the second part of it is there's this vast pool of need that Mary really articulately set out there that banks are, by, uh, by, by their own regulatory risk capital, their own regulations, and by their own nature, are ill-equipped to actually hold on balance sheet, which is why whether it's corporate loans, syndicated loan packages, mortgages, or anything else, the standard practice of banks is to take a chunk of risk in what they make and sell it to somebody else, to hold, and we have this all over financial services, insurance, and reinsurance. Uh, you know, banks and mortgage uh, securitizations. There's the alternative asset market for this is huge. And what's, Well, I
0: want to. I want to come back. I want to come back to that for a second because, as you mentioned, this is not new. Securitizing, packaging up debt, and selling it to whoever is not new, is not a new practice. And then whoever uh, ends up purchasing whatever sort of package the lenders put together does whatever they do to monetize it. That could involve a variety of different things. They hold it, they sell it, they work it, they service it. There's a million different ways that those entities end up making money off that, off that securitization uh, or, or repackaging. That obviously came under heavy scrutiny come uh, 2008, 2009, as sort of the economy was imploding when we saw the the problematic way that that was being done vis-a-vis mortgages. But the settlement itself in this particular case has some pretty, I think, unique characteristics in that we see a regulator and a private party sort of document together the way they want their contracts and businesses to operate, which is, in my view, sort of quite unique and quite different from the way we've seen other settlements come out, the way we've seen other consent decrees drafted, um, and, you know, and the like. And, And I think that the settlement itself and the way it's put together sort of has more significant implications i'm going to use the word significant and people can can you know think what they want to think about whether or not i think that's a good thing or a bad thing uh but i know that you two th- uh have some opinions on whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing but i think it's important that we sort of lay out like what the settlement actually did
2: so if you'd like i i have a list of points here uh and i'll promise i'll go quickly uh I'll on this
0: get after it Ed. so
2: so the settlement Uh, is, and again, I I have to sort of skeptically say the attorney general said that this we're doing this because of COVID and everybody's getting taken advantage of, et cetera. So here's what the state of Colorado uh, got, and here's what consumers got, and here's what happened. And it's important to note, this is not a consent decree. No, This is a discontinuance of action most AGs conclude settlements by consent decrees with findings. This is essentially a document where one side tells its story, the other side tells its story, nobody admits anything wrong, and they agree to a certain number of things. So the state of Colorado got $1.05 million to the AGs Fund for Consumer Protection and $500,000 to a State Department of Education financial literacy program, and consumers got absolutely nothing. Anybody who borrowed this product got zilch. Uh, and what happened was after each side told its stories, they agreed to a safe harbor design, which is essentially a set of regulations set forward in this agree agreement to discontinue. So consider it a truce. It's not a consent decree. It really does only bind the parties who agree to it, but it's publicized out there and put out in press releases from all of the parties who signed it Uh, as well as the AG, especially because they want to tell the marketplace, you too will spend millions of dollars in litigation with Colorado unless you do the following. So what they agree on um, is they set forward that the bank's going to be the true lender. They regulate the manner uh, heavily. They basically take all of the things that apply to banks and their charter specifically and they stuff the FinTech uh, partners into the need to comply with all of that and to be able to pass supervisory relationship, which is sort of not in keeping with the uh, with the OCC third-party vendor policy that, that Mary mentioned, either when we were preparing for the call or, or just a few minutes ago. You know, the federal regulators have actually done work on, on how to handle some of this. And this is state coming in and saying, nope. We're gonna take machines that the federal regulators built for one purpose. We're gonna stuff a bunch of innovators into the supervisory purview. Uh, And so they've come up with a rate cap, a really enhanced manner of examination for the FinTech providers. They've come up with a uh, much more burdensome level of reporting for the bank partners. uh, And they've come up with very significant restrictions on that asset or risk transfer transaction that we talked about that uh you know now you're limited i think to 49 percent of the designated pool can be sold off so that the bank will always hold the preponderance of the risk on the pool of loans um and that i mean i don't know if any of you have done a securitization i've been counsel a securitization i don't know it's crazy the number of things that have to get done for these are bonds that are sold. These are regulated securities. So the state of Colorado is saying that's not good enough. I got to design how it can actually occur.
0: So Mary, you heard what Ed just said about the settlement. Does that sound like consumer protection to you?
1: No, not at all. As a matter of fact, just to emphasize Ed's point, first of all, the settlement, a lot of the tenants of it is much ado about nothing because that's exactly what the FDIC requires now Um, If you are the fintech vendor to the bank, uh, people don't realize that the companies, the fintech companies, go through a very rigorous process with FDIC. They have to be certified, they have to be approved. As a matter of fact, FDIC is trying to figure out how to streamline the certification for fintech or vendor providers to the bank so banks don't have to absorb these costs and the rigors of trying to figure out. Um, how to, you know, catch up with the competition in the marketplace. So we applaud the FDIC for continuing to figure out how to make it easier for banks uh, to vet uh, vendors and to come up with a system that you don't have a patchwork of state regulators trying to figure that out this out, this out as well, that you have one primary regulator taking a look at the process. So, you know, I think that that part of the settlement it was like, okay, that's already in place. And again, this was a, a, a process put out under Tom Curry at the OC and FDIC under the Obama administration. So this isn't anything new. Um, I think the parts of this um, that are really scary are, like Ed said, getting to these contractual agreements and and designing how banks can, you know, to operate with the fintechs is just absurd for government officials to get involved in. And then back to the consumer. Again, that is what we need to stay focused on. Um, At the end of the day, this settlement will deny access to credit and it favors those parties involved in the settlement and their business model. It does not favor uh, people who are trying to innovate. Um, if anything, it is just, this is what these two companies agreed on, well, that's great. And if that is the template, well, unless you operate like those companies and only off those type of products, uh, what's, what's left out there? And I think it's, did it, you know, I think the settlement did a disservice to all the work that has been done in the true lender space. And it also is gonna stifle innovation and credit for consumers. I just can't stress that enough. And again, the, the whole crux of this is the APR limits that Colorado has imposed without any research, without any real uh, going back to figure out what happened in the marketplace. And I can tell you 36 disrupted the marketplace in a, in a large way. It, it, it sent the state licensed lenders to the hills. It actually, 36% APR actually put Colorado and the place they are today with this enforcement action, because that you can only export rates in to be able to serve a population. And you know Colorado doesn't realize that they just created this problem for themselves.
0: So. So I'm sort of curious, um, the, the cap, that 49% cap, Ed, that you were talking about as the percentage of the loans that could actually be packaged up, assigned, sold, uh, taken off their books, whatever you want to call it, it just struck me as sort of an odd number. Um, And again, sort of going back to Mary's point about the research and the reason and like, shouldn't... I'm sort of, you know, stressed out thinking about like the why, like, why was right. that your like, why was that your number? W- why do you think that that magical number makes, you know, Cross River or Web Bank more invested in the relationship than it already is? And by the way, what do you think they're going to do with the other 51% of the loans? Those are just gonna well, be- Let me tell you,
2: let me tell you what they're going to do. They're going to greatly reduce the pool of loans that they'll originate because they'll have to retain significantly more risk, and their own credit departments won't allow it. So I think that I'm going to I'll give you two answers to this about what one why why I think they 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 chose it, which I think is relatively artificial when you really think about the market. Um, and, and Mary just did a wonderful job of articulating the truly devastating impact on the availability of credit for anybody from deep subprime to just over, just barely inside of Prime uh, with the usurping of the national bank charters and uh, and the state bank charters in order to impose a state usury cap, what I'm about to talk about is the corresponding adverse effect on the marketplace that fuels these loans. And you have to look sometimes two or three credit parties deep in this. So 51 percent retained by them comes from the antiquated notion that the true lender test means that the originating institution holds a majority, uh, which is sort of like, you know, when we go in front of a jury, Darren, it's more likely than not. It's the 50.9, 50.51% tipping point, a majority or preponderance of the economic risk. And it, it's interesting, you could, you could probably dig into that a lot in terms of you know, even if you sold 90% of the economic value and you had certain recall and, invor- and inventive default rights or guarantees, are you actually carrying a greater degree? I know that rating agencies look at guarantees that way. If the if the selling party might take more cash out at the, at the beginning, but they have to guarantee a level of performance. And if they don't, they have to repay part of that.
0: But I mean, I, so I'm gonna gonna get a little feisty here who cares, right, at, at, at this point? So, so what's going to happen? They're going to originate less loans. If that was the goal, like, congratulations, thumbs up, they're going to originate less loans. But the notion that they need to maintain uh, that 51% of, of the risk, like, are they actually doing that? Because now you're putting lenders in a position to start a line of business in recovery, right? Because those, something happens with those loans. They either perform or they don't perform. So something happens with them. And if those institutions are not set up to provide recovery services to those consumers, what do the regulators think that go- is going to happen? Well,
1: well, I can just say that the FDIC insurance, they don't want the banks to take on any risk, right? That's how you are allowed to get FDI insurance. The FDIC is going to regulate risk. And, um, you know, the policies and the thoughts might be up here, but when it comes down to that exam staff and they're examining the bank's books for risk, you know, if they're holding 51% of the risk, again, it's going to be the loans with the less risk Um, And that is why it's going to harm non-prime borrowers. So it's just forcing these partnerships then to only deal with more prime consumers. And that's why the non-prime space is going to take a horrible hit from a consumer perspective. They will not get access to these innovative bank products, um, especially if the bank has to hold on to them. FDIC is not going to allow banks to hang on to a lot of risk. And that is just the reality of what we're dealing with. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the legalese of all this, but the economic reality is FDIC does not want banks to hold a lot of risk. And that makes total sense because they're insuring for that. So, you know, again, uh, AG is a political law enforcement arm. Um, and again, they, they, they're, they're just following the law and they're trying to make it stick. This isn't about consumer protection. This is about imposing some will of a few individuals and, and trying to come up with a new idea, I get it. But if you look at the pieces of it, it is only gonna deny access to credit to people.
0: So, so I would, just an observation, here we're talking about the state of Colorado, a state that sits within the 10th Circuit, which is not particularly known for being like an activist consumer protection circuit. You know, we're not talking about California or New York or Illinois or any of the, you know, uh, states that have been traditionally much more aggressive when it comes to their rulings and consumer protection viewpoints. They've not been shy about that. Do you think that this really just sets the stage for a bunch of other states to file copycat lawsuits, follow suit within their own regulatory structures that can be just as aggressive, if not more, than Colorado's structure? I'm gonna make Ed answer that one. <laughs> that's why. Yeah, I, I, that's why Ed loves me. All right, Teach. Uh,
2: yeah, no, I, I think this, uh, I, I think this um, will embolden other attorneys general to go specifically for this kind uh, of uh, of action. Um, I think it'll be interesting. I think this starts, uh, this is, I think the snowball's already been rolling down the hill, but there's a, you know, there's a clash coming, uh, and it's actually already going on in courts between uh, state bank supervisors and AGs in the uh, Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. This, this one ups that and you know we're going to see this start to play out in national association of attorney general meetings even more so than it has already conference of state bank supervisor meetings banking conferences um etc i think it'll be it'll be interesting to see Administration changes always make you wonder about really big shift in priorities and consumer protection, and financial services. But I will say that that while it's been a different level of, there's been a different degree, for sure between a Obama and a Trump administration approach. OCC has been largely embracing of this at different paces, but has largely been embracing of this from two and a half years, uh, you know, three or four years into the. Uh, Obama administration, the fintech charter movement starts to pick up steam and is as recent as the day around the settlement or, or the day around the ruling by the state of Colorado. Uh, the acting controller of the currency announced the the, the uh, fintech payments program in late June, and so you know I think this uh, it reveals a continued schism between who should be regulating this particular aspect of the disruptive tendency of FinTech um, and what effect will it have?
0: So before I, we've, we've got a few minutes left. I would kick myself and most of my clients would kick me too. If we didn't talk about secondary debt markets and sort of the implication that this settlement may have on those. So the settlement between the AG Avant Marlette sort of drew a line in the sand and said okay we are not you are not in trouble for all of those uh, loans that were originated before even though we think that they're bad and wrong and you didn't have the proper license and shame on you um but you're gonna fix it going forward so we're gonna pat you on the head and like that'll be okay thank you for the million and a half dollars um that didn't go to consumers but mary I, I got I, I got 'm glad i'm glad I got a smile out of Mary listeners you can 't see it, but mary is to, mary's totally smiling right now my My thought is is so all of that debt right so everyone was very focused on the fact that uh, cross River and Webbank assign and transfer the title to this debt to uh, avant and Marlette. but guess what avant and Marlette do plenty of selling of that paper All by themselves after they get, um, after, you know, those loans stop performing the way they want them to perform. Just like every other, you know, OCC chartered bank, you know, charges off, packages up, and sells pools and portfolios of paper. My concern, right, is, okay, so Avant and Marlette got a free pass. What about the subsequent purchasers of those loans originated under this structure that Avant and Marlette don't hold anymore, there's plenty of those loans originated that they do not hold title to anymore and that are sitting in the hands of second uh, secondary debt buyer purchasers being serviced by debt collection agencies where Avant and Marlette made clear reps and warrants to those purchasers in their purchase sale agreements about the validity of the loans, following the law, so on and so forth. What happens to those market participants? They're not parties to this settlement agreement. Are we waiting for this for the for the shoe to drop on them? This is this is a toss up. Anyone? can
2: uh, see Well, I, I almost want to put it right back on you. Uh, you. You know, we I know you have significant. Oh, but Ed, experience. I'm the host
0: today. I'm the host well, today. I'm not the expert.
2: He, <laughs> having represented having represented the few clients in the RMA that you don't have before in AG actions, I can tell you that it's dealer's choice whether or not Colorado wants to devote some of that one million dollars that Avon Marlette gave them to go beat up on people who are collecting on it. And if they had really wanted to be white horse, you can't have that credit, shouldn't have that credit, shouldn't be touched by that credit, consumer protectors, they would have impleaded the receivables people. They would have put restrictions in the safe harbors on it, and they would have made them forgive those loans as parties to the suit. They haven't. It's available. I think it shows that it's a value choice that they wanted to regulate the fintech environment by uh, litigation settlement and not truly slash and burn uh, under the consumer protection
1: hats that they normally wear.
0: Mary, what do you think?
1: Yeah. Um, again, it shouldn't trickle downstream. I mean, if they made these uh, arrangements with the lenders, um, I certainly can't see it getting passed on down the line. It makes no sense. Um, uh, so I think, uh, you know, you would hope that there isn't any uh, action against the debt, uh, debt collectors or debt buyers. Um, this debt obviously was okay by the AGs. So hopefully lawyers like you can make that case if they ever go after them. Um, But I would like to say, I think we're, you know, trying to close that, you know, what we see is a lot of political posturing out there, a lot of don't do this in my state. Um, And we would encourage states to pass laws that allow to compete with the fintech community. Um, Right now, you do have small and regional size fintech lenders out there and banks and credit unions that struggle in this market now because of the largeness of fintech um, because of the seamless um, demand that's out there that consumers want, especially an unsecured credit. Um, if you live in, you know, Maryland today and you move to Colorado, um, you want the same kind of credit. You don't want to go there and have a different law, especially on either your credit card, whether it's a personal loan, uh, you and you don't want different restrictions every time you move or. Um, You know, again, every time a state puts in more restrictions, this makes that state typically less competitive when you look at what banks are putting in the marketplace with their ability to to export any type of product. So you know, as fintechs grows, as we rely on the internet for services, uh, states have to get uh, really smart on how to stay competitive with their licensing and their, their offerings. And the more restrictions you put on it, the heavier it does get for local and regional providers to stay in the game.
0: I think that's a great uh, sort of point to wrap up on. You know, thank you, Mary, Ed, for your time today. I think this is going to be a really interesting one to watch sort of play out and sort of the evolution of how, you know, these bank partnerships, you know, evolve because it's not only, you know, it's not only web banking cross river. What is this going to mean for how other, how other, you know, uh, middle market banks and how other fintechs are going to try to structure their programs sort of going forward because nobody wants to, you know, be any state AG's guinea pig, uh, you know, in a court, um, especially when all of they're trying to do is provide good credit options to consumers, be innovative, you know, and run successful businesses. Um, So thank you guys so much for your time. Uh, You know, as as things progress, I might call on you both again so we can come in and do like a, do a check-in on what's happening in the market. But until next time, everyone, thank you so much for listening.